Welcome to Conversation Mill. My name is Rebecca Dale and I am the host of the show. I have a passion for sharing how the creation of thriving local economies benefits us all. I'm fascinated by how we come together to form our communities on a macro and micro scale and how our histories and stories when shared can not only motivate and inspire, but can facilitate understanding. As our communities, large and small, bring back a more progressive Main Street, individuals are stepping out to pursue their passions and local leaders are pushing back against corporate greed. It's time to engage these community leaders and small business owners in conversation. What are the driving forces behind their courage and success and how can we continue to build communities that embrace diversity, support the local economy, and create a healthy ecosystem for the culture at large? Join us now in conversation. My addiction is coffee. I have a morning routine that starts with grinding the beans for our French press. So it was high time that we had a guest on this show that has been perfecting their coffee knowledge, from the growing process to the brewing and beyond. Heather has made it a focus to return to the origin of the brew we love so much. She partnered with Maui Brew Co. to house Origin Coffee Roasters and is striving to work closely with coffee farmers on and off Maui to create an approachable flavor profile. Join us now in conversation as we talk about what goes in to creating a coffee brand that gives all coffee lovers an approachable brew. Let's start with why did you choose Origin Coffee as the name? What is the significance? Well, for me, when I first got into coffee, you know, it was just a part-time job, but as specialty coffee, the idea of it and the mission behind it kind of took hold of me. My ultimate goal was going to origin. You know, that's what we call it. Like when we go and visit, say, like Salvador, Nicaragua, like where coffee's growing, you know, it's growing regions, but in my head, it was always going to origin. Yeah. And that was just always my goal. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I got, I got that twofold with Maui and then origin coffee. So tell us where your origin is. Where do you start with coffee? Uh, back in Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a really small town uh, about an hour northwest out of Columbus, but mm-hmm. um, was going to college, Ohio Dominican there, and needed a part-time job. And I always thought cafes were so cool and yeah, <laughs> grew up, you know, wanting to like, you know, no one in my family drank coffee. So the idea of going to a coffee shop was always just like what people did on TV. Right. <laughs> and so got a part-time job at the local coffee roaster there called Stoff's Coffee Roasters. Okay. Just at a certain point, you know, my schooling, while I loved going to school and, you know, working for a degree, like coffee kind of really took hold mm-hmm. of of me creatively. And that's when, you know, Intelligentsia and Stumptown were like coming onto the scene and pe- getting noticed. Yeah. You know, it was always Starbucks and these bigger roasters. But mm-hmm. the idea of the third wave of coffee was, was hitting around that. So that was like early 2000s. Uh, Portland was on my mind for a really, really long time. And 
I just made the decision one day. I was like, I'm just going to start saving up, you know, like yeah. barista wages, yeah. saving tips <laughs> and drove my car cross country to Portland. Didn't know anybody. I had an old coworker from Columbus who had moved out there. So stayed with him for a few weeks. You know, I applied at Stumptown. I applied at Fresh Pot. And uh, I'd met a couple of guys and they're like, no, you need to you know, check out this spot, the Albina Press. And I had never heard of it, but it was relatively new, but it was like the new hot thing in Portland at the mm-hmm. time. So I showed up one day, you know, like my bike messenger bag rolled <laughs> sure, <laughs> yeah. up on my my vintage racing Cannondale. And <laughs> it was like, uh, Billy Wilson was behind bar. He was at the time, like the regional barista champion. He currently owns barista in portland Mm. and he was working bar and he saw me like fiddling with my resume and he's like oh that looks like a resume and i was like it is he's like put it up here and like kind of points towards the bar and set it up there and he's kind of just reading through and i had no idea who he was like no idea of his reputation whatsoever (laughs) he's like well, what do you want to drink? And it was kind of like he was judging me like on what I wanted to drink. And I was like, I don't know. Depends on what you're good at. Yeah. (laughs) And he was like, oh, touche. Wow. Um, So funny person to do that too, but he loved it. They were just really pushing the envelope in terms of, you know, what that specialty coffee Mm. experience looks like at a cafe. Right. Um. You know, it wasn't like you walked in and it was a very welcoming space, but what we were doing behind bar had to be like absolute perfection. Yeah. And I really appreciated that at the time. And I still do now, you know, like I obviously know perfection isn't something that we can ever like hold on to, but just the pursuit to always be better. Yeah. When you started at that first job, what in coffee what about it was it the coffee flavor was it the like um ceremony of how you make coffee was it getting a perfect espresso was it like <laughs> what were the what was it the art of it that pulled you in i think at first it was the knowledge like mm-hmm. knowing that each coffee was unique to mm-hmm. itself and that different growing regions hold like different flavor profiles mm-hmm. and, you know, learning about the processing. So that part of it pulled me in. But then, yeah, the I think I got really obsessed with espresso. Mm-hmm. Um, we held like a little intercompany competition at the time. Um, it was when barista competitions were starting to be more well-known. And so they were holding an intercompany competition to see we're going to pick two winners to go to the Special Coffee Association annual conference and, you know, not even compete at that barista level, but just to attend. You win win a ticket. And so my drink was, it was so traditional, but it was just kind of a Cubano style. So espresso with sugar in the raw. Mm. And um, then I just took a lime and It was so basic and (laughs) wiped the outer edge of the rim and I called it the limelight. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, and, um, you know, we had no idea. We never experienced that format. Like someone served biscotti with their drink and it was just, you know, 20 years ago in coffee, what we thought that specialty experience should look like. Yeah. (laughs) 
So you're in Portland. You get this job at this up and coming place. What what pivots um, from there for you then? Um, so I was in Portland for about three years, and then um, my best friend Katie she unexpectedly passed away, mm. and that kind of changed things for me, like on a large scale. Um, you know, as my person who I lost, and I just felt like I needed a change of mm. scenery after that. I didn't know what it was, but I was like, I can't be in the place where I got this news. I have to I have to move on. So I, you know, I did things like I went on a backpacking trip through Mexico at first mm-hmm. and <laughs> and did that. Um made a decision and, and went with it. Um, got down to San Diego and found like a very cute but basic apartment, like a block from the beach and in, in Ocean Beach and um, at first got a job, like I was painting houses, working with this handyman, mm-hmm. um, while I was figuring out the coffee scene down there, uh, got a job at, I always like thought I wanted to like work and live in ocean beach, but it just, it didn't have what I was looking for mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of the coffee scene. I stumbled onto this place at North park called cafe Calabria. The owner there, Arnie, he'd seen my resume and gave me a call. And he, I think he was originally from Seattle, like went to Italy, was was in love with that, you know, Italian coffee yeah. vibe sort of thing. And he'd heard of the Albina Press and he was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, cool. well, I was like, I'm a, I've always been a barista, but like, you know, I want to learn how to roast coffee mm. and all of that. And yeah. that was... I think 2007 maybe. And at the time, I think like roasting jobs and even before that were like always occupied by usually men and then men with a mechanical background. Mm. You know, not a lot of the people in roasting positions at the time had a lot of like coffee background or coffee knowledge. It was just like dudes who could fix things. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so I got hired on. They made me the cafe manager and um eventually i just kept pushing and pushing a little bit more and was like how about that roasting how about that roasting and then was given the opportunity uh they had a very large roaster they were roasting on a 45 kilo probot um super vintage i think it was built in like 1958 cool but like my the only part that they thought that i couldn't do was the physical aspects and i was like well what do you mean and they're like well you know it's 90 pounds of coffee in there plus the bucket like can you lift it into the hopper to for the vacuum yeah i was like well let's see yeah <laughs> at the time i was like surfing rock climbing you know cycling sometimes all on the same day so i was like i am not worried about the, phys- yeah. the physical aspect of it i grew up in the country too so i was always right climbing trees doing things you know and so I lifted the bucket and put it in. And I was like, okay, so when do we start? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah. And uh, Jesse was the roaster, head roaster at the time. Um, super cool dude who um, rode motorcycles. And like I said, he fixed stuff and yeah. was, was very mechanical. He actually got me into riding motorcycles. So <laughs> <laughs> you you took these big leaps, like going to Portland, going to California, backpacking through Mexico, Without knowing what you were getting into, which is a scary thing for most people, what what is it in you or where do you get it to just take these giant scary leaps? 
that other people wouldn't just go, oh, well, I don't know anyone in Portland except one person. I'm going to go. Yeah, I I kind of wish that I knew <laughs> what that was because I don't neither one of my parents are like that. Like my mm-hmm. mom, she came to San Diego one time, but she still hasn't come out to Hawaii. She very much likes to be home, doesn't like to travel. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I think as a kid, I always just wanted to go on an adventure. Yeah. And change, I think, like you mentioned, is is scary for a lot of people. But there's something about me that really enjoys yeah. settling into a new new place. Yeah, there's just change is possibility. Like I feel like, you know, if you stay mm. the same, yeah. Your possibility starts to that window starts to shrink. Oh, that's so true. So you end up here on Maui, and we're talking about origins of of coffee. There's so many places around the world you could use as a home base for that. And you mentioned some place in Nicaragua, um, but you're here on Maui. So what brought you here to Maui to do coffee here? My wife, she had originally, before we met, was working at Maui Brewing Company. She was running their Kahana brew pub when we met. Mm. And she eventually moved out to San Diego and started up, helped start up the brewery St. Archer. Uh, she, we were in, well, I was in San Diego for about 10 years. She was there for about five. Um, St. Archer ended up selling to Miller Coors and mm. there was transition going on there. And she was always raised on, on craft beer. And yeah. <laughs> so she felt like she was betraying her, her roots of, of brewing mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, so she, uh, Garrett had been, Garrett is, he's the owner of Maui Brewing Company. He was trying, you know, throughout the years, like to get her to come back to Maui, like, I guess really valued her as an employee. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity on one of Garrett's visits to San Diego. I hosted him at a cupping when I was at Bird Rock Coffee Roasters Mm -hmm. and he had no idea about the, the the whole coffee experience, the specialty coffee world, but his mind was blown. He was super intrigued, and I think he saw saw opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of like a a dual pitch that he threw. He wanted to hire Kim on as brewmaster, and he wanted to start a coffee roasting company with me. Um, originally, we planned this all to be like a cold brew manufacturing company sure. um, and focusing primarily on an RTD line. Uh, COVID changed all of that, um, mm-hmm. kind of had to focus a little bit more on wholesale accounts. And that actually ended up being a really good thing for us. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of great accounts that we work with, you know, Espresso Mafia, like Marlowe locally, the market in Wailea. Um, a lot of places have picked up our cold brew as well. So being able to develop those relationships, I think, was a really important part of the journey as well. Sure. You get out here and you're going to start this brand. Take us kind of through what that process and what that setup is for, for those of us that aren't familiar with starting a coffee roasting business. Where do you start with that? <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> yeah, I I had to learn that as well. You know, while I was involved in the operations and production, um, a little bit in the logistics of, of getting and sourcing coffee. Sure. Uh, so 
as I went along, I would say I definitely learned a lot as well. But we had some time before we actually went live. So got to focus a lot on on branding, mm. getting that picture of what I wanted things to look like. And I have like a simplistic, minimalist idea of what, what yeah. design should be. You know, don't like clutter too much. Website, social media was... I'd say the next things that that came along was like building a website. And I already knew where I wanted to get a lot of my equipment from. Mm -hmm. Uh, We roast on a 15 kilo Loring roaster, just phenomenal uh, piece of equipment. And then I think the part that I didn't know the most about was getting our custom brew house built for the cold brew. Mm. So Kim, uh, my wife, she basically built that brew house from the ground up it's it's very similar to beer equipment brewing equipment um that whole thing is a custom build design job by her and then actually learning how to use it and making the idea of what it was built for and then making it actually do those things (laughs) was another adventure yeah and and we're working at such a large scale too. Uh, each batch of cold brew that we put into the brew house, it's six hundred and fifty pounds of coffee. So there's not a lot of, you know, you whoops on that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not a good day. So let's go back to the roasting part specifically because I I think that's the most intriguing part of coffee to me. Besides, like where it starts with the farmer, right? Which I want to talk about too, but. Can you talk to us about the roasting process and how how things vary, right? Because I right, wouldn't a lot of people just say like coffee is coffee is coffee, but that really depends on bean and then also how it's roasted, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. can you take us through the roasting part first and how like you get your flavor profiles to come out? Starting out, like I tell everyone that roasting is so similar to cooking mm-hmm. um, in general. But, you know, the basic stages of roasting, you know, you're, you have your drop point when you're dropping your green beans into the roasting chamber or drum. It depends on what kind of roaster you have. Uh, there are direct fire roasters where the heat is underneath the roaster and it's just like banks of heat and there's a drum that kind of spins around like a washing machine mm-hmm. or our Loring uh, that you got to see where it's just more of a chamber with paddles that uh, stir the beans, um, but the heat source is in the back and then the air is recycled. So as uh, soon as you get your beans in, you know, you have your drop point and you're always going to have a drop in temperature and then a rebound. So mm. once, you know, your curve goes down and then it starts to go right back up and we're entering like a drying sort of phase, I'd say the first like four minutes of a roast is just forcing moisture out of those beans um you know especially coffee has anywhere from 10 to 14 percent moisture mm-hmm. then when we're done it's 0.000 like four something so it's it's yeah. minuscule uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and then you enter the browning stage you know coffee starts to take on this almost cinnamon light cinnamon sort of color that's anywhere from I'd say 350 degrees Fahrenheit to you know leading up to first crack, which is around 385, 390, depending on where you are, what kind of roaster you have. And that mm-hmm. first crack is 
similar to what happens with popcorn. You know, that mm-hmm. kernel starts to burst open. Same thing with coffee. There's, you know, about a 20% expansion in bean size and it breaks free of its silver skin and it just puffs up like, like pop- it even audibly sounds like popcorn, yeah. but, you know, a little bit more less robust. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, we don't enter a second crack on any of our coffees. You mm-hmm. can get into a second crack. That's a pretty dark roast. Um, but yeah, we take ours. Generally, you can describe it as a, a medium roast. I think a lot of, you know, the basics are, you know, light, medium, dark mm-hmm. is what most people are familiar with. And what's the fundamental difference between those, the light, the medium, and the dark? Is just length of then you keeping it on the roaster? Yeah, time and temperature. Mm-hmm. How does that affect the flavor profile that that bean has? Yeah, it affects the the development of the sugars, the fats, mm-hmm. um, all the other things that I'm not smart enough to know <laughs> about in the chemical breakdown. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you know, your light roast is... You can compare it to cooking a steak. You know, mm. your rare steak is going to be your light roast. Right. Um, you're going to get more of those natural, like, terroir flavors out of the coffee. Um, some of them might not be as developed, though, in the sugar stages. So it might taste, you know, the lighter, the brighter, the more acidic. Right. And certain coffees taste so good like that. And other coffees need a little bit more development. So you get into that medium roast stage. Um, sugars are caramelizing more and some of the more chocolatey flavors mm. as well. And you would get a more balanced profile, something that's more approachable. The dark roast is when you've gone from that caramelization stage to carbonization. Uh, and mm. it, you know, it starts to taste more like the inside of the roaster or the grill than, you know, Right. So it'd be well done steak. Yeah. Going back to the origin then of the bean and the different flavor profiles that come with where it's grown, what are some of your favorite places to source beans from to get those profiles that you're looking for? I mean, we have been working with some new farm or not new farmers, but more farmers over on Big Island. And that Mm -hmm. has been a fun adventure. Um, Working with a farm in Kona and then a couple over in Kau and mm. finding that I I don't know what it is uh, about the Kau region, but I just I've found that I really enjoy the coffees out of Kau a little bit yeah. more. Just the complexity, the richness, um, mm-hmm. not to say that Kona coffees by any means are right. are not good. But uh, right. yeah, I would say I'm impartial to the Kau region. And then um, I've been working with. Annie Ruth, who she owns a farm in El Salvador. Um, And I was working with her when I was the roaster at Bird Rock. And that's when I I first, you know, we traveled down there and we got to um, be there for an early harvest and see her farm and just be more a part of the process. I actually miss i think the most are african coffees mm-hmm. uh hawaii has a ban on importing those to hawaii you can only bring them in roasted uh, uh so for me that's my favorite growing region you're just getting some of the most unique and complex flavors out of coffee that i've ever tasted and is that from what's in the soil that's then affecting the, the in terms flavor? of why they're yeah banned? like or, or why, well, that too, but also why 
It's the oh, the flavor profile yeah. that you like. Is that's is that what it's pulling from, or does it have to do with like climate zone, more moisture, cold, hot? I would say all of the above. Okay. So you know your soil, your microclimates, mm. your elevation, the way that they're processing their coffee. Um, mm. You know, Kenya, they process their coffee. They do, I, I don't know if everyone does it there, but uh, they do this, it's called a double soak Kenyan fermentation. And basically, you know, it's for washed coffee. So all washed coffee goes through fermentation for 12 to, you know, 20 hours, 48 hours, depending on, you know, what the farm is doing at that level. Um, and in Kenya, they're doing that twice. Mm. So they're removing the water, adding fresh water to that batch of beans to then do the double soak fermentation method. And it adds, it adds complexity, um, acidity, juiciness, mm. even. Um, we did a fun experiment experiment with uh, Kupa'a Farms here locally, Jerry and Janet. Um, I was talking to them uh, specifically about that method and they mm. tried it at their farm and got good results. They were just yeah. like, wow, this was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I love working with them for that reason of like, you know, they're curious mm -hmm. and, you know, an innovation too. Yeah. What roasting mistakes did you make when you first started roasting Gosh, I guess sometimes when you get out of rhythm when you're a production roaster, you know, mm -hmm. everyone thinks roasting is a super glamorous job and it's like this, you know, you wear hipster overalls and like look really cool. Uh -huh. But it's so boring. And if you get out of rhythm, that's when you could, uh, you know, pull two batches into your green hopper and then you have like a Guatemalan sitting on top of your like Colombian coffee and you're just like crap <laughs> uh, yeah because we don't we blend after after roast, so we don't yeah but then having too much coffee and you know in the hoppers things like that so it's like getting out of rhythm would be mm -hmm. a big mistake because you talked a lot about specialty coffee at the beginning of this conversation what are the main factors that separate each different specialty coffee like what what are the distinctions that if someone is judging a competition that they're looking for well, there's a lot of different categories. They just revamped the scoring sheet. So I'm not super familiar with that. And that's just like our, our global identity as a special coffee mm -hmm. association worldwide. We try and stay on the same grading scale. Uh, so you're looking for body acidity, um, you know, on your aroma, your fragrance, mm -hmm. uh, all those different categories. If you're grading coffee. Yeah on a cupping table at competition it's it's different um they have uh sensory judges and technical judges so not only you know does it have to taste good but you also have to be doing all the things <laughs> yeah to them correctly yeah up until that point when people are trying your coffee what flavor profiles are they going to get from origin coffee uh depending on the coffee uh, i would say with our blends I try and make everything really approachable. Mm. Um, and we kind of term it as a crowd pleaser. So mm. it's like what people think of coffee. You know, I want it to be balanced. I want it to be chocolatey. Uh, espresso blend is like dark chocolate, caramel, citrus, you know, kind of like a dark chocolate orange yeah. vibe. Um, with some of our other specialty coffees, like we have a natural geisha from Colombia right now. Uh, super fruity coffee, mango, grapefruit. 
going to be lighter, a little bit brighter, but still really balanced because it has some depth with its chocolate flavor. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so overall, just trying to achieve like harmony and balance within each coffee mm-hmm. while highlighting those flavors yeah. that naturally exist. Yeah. You were telling me when I came over to see um, your roasting operation about the, and and you mentioned them a little bit earlier, the farmers you're working with here on Maui for coffee and what that process is kind of like. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Because it's on such a small scale right now. Um, But can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, it was uh, kind of by chance meeting uh, Jerry and Janet who own Kapa'a Farms uh, upcountry. Uh, Willem Boot actually came to Maui a couple years ago, and anyone who's into specialty coffee has probably heard of him. His family, they own coffee farms in Panama. He owns an education center in in California. But he kind of came over to hold a demonstration for the farmers about, you know, quality and being able to participate in these auctions, more so focused on like the Asian markets in, you know, Korea, Japan, um, Mm. where Hawaiian coffee is like really sought after to get up to that level that, you know, where Kona and or well, where Big Island is um, with their auction coffees. So within my first six months of being on Maui, I got to meet almost every single coffee farmer at this one event. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> and uh and taste their coffees mm-hmm. too. So that was very important part of the process and really enjoyed Jerry and Janet's coffee. Uh it stood out on the cupping table to me. It had a ton of sweetness and so I started talking to to Jerry when I was there and it wasn't until gosh about 2 years later that I actually got to roast his coffee because they have a two acre farm and they grow vegetables and a ton of other things, including coffee. So when I would buy coffee from Jerry and Janet, it's, you know, 10 pounds a year. Right. Um, so my friend Kim Westerman, she works at Coffee Review, which is kind of like a guide for consumers who are really into coffee to gauge of like, get to know new new coffee roasters, kind of like Wine Spectator, essentially. Mm-hmm. And we had used them heavily in the past at Bird Rock, where, you know, coffee is graded on a 100-point scale. They have a slightly different system, but, you know, coffee's ranging 90 points and above. That's, that's where you want to be. Yeah. <laughs> and so she was doing an article on Hawaiian-grown coffees, and she's like, hey, because we'd she'd tasted all my coffees at Bird Rock. She's like, why don't you... Get, you know, submit some of these coffees for this article because it's basically it's like a non-commissioned review. So it's just a it's a freebie. Sure. Yeah. And um, I was like, oh, I don't know who I want to ask. So I ended up calling up Jerry and I was like, hey, you want to submit some of your coffees? I'll roast them and yeah. we'll submit them to coffee review for this article. See how they do. They usually pick the top like five coffees that they, you know, 10 coffees maybe. And uh, Jerry was totally down, gave me a kilo of three different coffees and submitted them for the article. Uh, two of them made it through to the final round of being featured. And then the Orange Bourbon got featured in the article, scored a, I think, believe like a 93 out of wow. 100 point scale. Yeah. And then later that year, went on to make the top 30 coffees um, for coffee review that year. Wow. So 
<laughs> yeah, first time a Maui Coffee's ever made it on that list, and that felt really good. Yeah, you know? and I got to like share that news with Jerry and Janet. I'm like, see, I told you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a huge, I mean, that's a huge accomplishment so quickly. Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, I'm not new yeah. to roasting in that right, terms, right. but new to being here on Maui. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's that's kind of the goal is like, hey, I'm here and like, let's shine a spotlight. Like, mm-hmm. let's make it what it can be. You know, Maui coffee can really take off. What do you look for when you're looking for farmers to buy from, whether it be here on Maui or um, around the world? What are some of the things you look for? Do you just know these farmers have a great reputation? I'm going to them. Yeah, some through experience of working Mm -hmm. with them in the past uh, since I've been doing it for so long. So just that goes right in with consistency. So, Mm -hmm. you know, having that relationship. So I'm looking for consistency, looking for quality, and then innovation. For the cold brew that you're creating, what coffee are you using for that? I'm using a lot of high-grown Mexican coffees. Mm. I went through a a bunch of different blends, uh, trialing things, uh, you know, Indonesian coffees, some Central and South American coffees, and came to find, like, you know, I want that cold brew. You know, there's no sweetener in it. There's no preservatives. Mm. It's just nitro cold brew. So I just wanted the whoever's drinking that coffee just for it to be – approachable for everyone so just like a big chocolate bomb Mm -hmm. and mexican coffees provide that perfectly they have like this depending on you know the regions of course but like we're looking for big fudgy chocolatey coffees take us through that that process of the the cold brew because it adds the element and you have this great partnership with maui bruco but it adds that element of of so much more from the brewing to the packaging, the canning of it, um, and then a a distribution of it. So can you take us a little bit through that? Yeah, it's a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) We're really big on sanitation and cleanliness because with cold brew, it's considered a low acid food Mm -hmm. beverage. So the pH is above 4.7, and that just means it needs some extra love and attention, you know, it has to be kept refrigerated unless we're doing, you know, retort on the cans. We don't have access that to to that process on Maui Um, and shipping it to Oahu would be too expensive. So we brew uh, starting the brew day. I have a 15 kilo roaster. So that's a lot of roasting. It's like, (laughs) you know, we're doing, was it 1100, no, 1300 pounds um, that I'm roasting the you know, five days before we brew Mm -hmm. and then getting the brew house ready. So we're running, you know, for people in the brewing industry, like a caustic acid sani cycle on the brew house uh, Mm -hmm. before we brew. And that makes sure that just, you know, it's going to kill any pathogens that could Mm -hmm. possibly exist. And grinding the coffee the day prior, I loaded into like 12 bag portions because we do manually load everything into a funnel that goes directly into a hydrator and the hydrator then sends the coffee through like a f- three inch pathway into the brew house and the brew house has this wedge wire basket inside of it mm. almost like this helix corkscrew paddle 
Okay. Uh, so while we're mashing in or you know adding the coffee, uh, it's about a 20, 25 minute process. So it actually does go pretty quickly. And it's it's me and my wife. I'm on the brew deck, and then she has a scissor lift on the other side, and we just alternate. Uh-huh. It's, it's very physical. So once we're mashed in, we bring our water up to the level we're always finish adding the coffee before the water level gets there the the brew house is glycol jacketed which just means it's temperature controlled so it starts chilling the coffee automatically Mm. Um, once we reach our desired like water to coffee ratio we do turn off that paddle inside we've made the mistake the first time to leave it on and all that does is just beat the crap out of the coffee wow. for 16 hours and creates a really hazy cold brew, which is not desirable. Right. So we had to dump a few, ba- well, one batch by doing that. <laughs> which that's 600 pounds of coffee, right? Yeah. And then how how much fluid is that? Or how many gallons? Yeah, how many gallons? Uh, Yeah, we do a one-to-one. Okay. So yeah, oh, lots of Lots yeah. of water too. Uh, we do use a sterile water filter too, so making yeah. sure uh, the water is as sterile as possible too. So, if, you know, sixteen wow. hours steep time mm-hmm. on that, uh, and then transfer day we have a pump on the brew house and two bag filters, so we take it down to like a one micron. Uh, on the second bag filter, it goes from fifty to one, and we just at first use gravity, just cracking open a couple of valves on the collection ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, transfer is probably the longest process out of out of brewing it, anywhere from about two hours, maybe two and a half hours. Uh, we just try and be really careful because, you know, while we have a grinder and I adjust the burrs to open them up to get the coarsest grind possible, we don't have a roller grinder. Those are like twenty, thirty thousand mm. $30,000 grinders. So someday. Uh, so we do get some fines. So just to not get those fines yeah. and you know we we do f- the filter as well but it also helps reduce to, yeah, yeah taking a little bit slower at first we do a double batch so after that first batch is done we empty the coffee out of that wedge wire basket into this big ibc tote which it ends up being over a thousand pounds after mm. it comes out remove that rinse everything down run another caustic acid sani and then brew right back into it the same day wow do the same thing with the transfer the next day. And usually that's that last transfer day, we will run the flash pasteurization cycle on it, which was another loop because that affects flavor of the coffee. It does strip some body. It strips some of the sweetness down. So that's where those Mexican coffees really panned out mm. to be. They stood up to the flash pasteurizer a lot better than the other coffees did. Uh, so once we have that, we have about 32 barrels of cold brew. And a barrel of beer is like, I think, 31 gallons. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and then we nitrogenate partially in a bright tank, which is just kind of like a big pressurized refrigerator. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we end up putting... We we do five-gallon kegs for the, the restaurant at the brewery, so we do about 20 of those. Mm-hmm. And then the rest goes to the cans. So uh, Maui Brewing has a phenomenal canning line. Yeah. <laughs> it's super nice and really fancy. It does, right now, it does, I think, about 400 cans a minute, uh, somewhere around there. 
Mm-hmm. And so my runs last maybe 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah. the setup. So they have they run everything on CO2 because mm-hmm. they're they're using beer. But with cold brew, you have to do 100% nitrogen for everything. Like even just uh, a little bit of CO2 turns everything carbonic and the cold brew tastes like ugh. Sour Patch Kids. Yeah. It's not good. It's yeah. terrible. You go through that whole process and now – the second half of the work is the sales process and the getting it in markets, getting it in grocery stores, getting it on the shelf, which it can be hard to get that slot in a cooler. The sales part can be difficult, especially in Hawaii, because the chill space, mm. just backstock chill space is, is right. pretty limited here. Yeah. So that's been a big hurdle for us and, and distribution, um, you know, having to ship everything. on that chill side. Um, Mm. So we partnered with a small local distributor, Rimfire Imports. Uh, They deal with really high-end food products for restaurants like pastas, cheeses, olive oils. Uh, So they picked us up actually in the thick of lockdown and and Mm. COVID. Um, We were working with uh, another distributor, like getting our foot in the door with them. And before we finalized things, they kind of were like, they saw the writing on the wall and they were like, no, we can't do this right now. And, you know, I totally understand. Um, But yeah, Rimfire took a chance on us, picked us up during COVID and got us over to Oahu. So that's been kind of the focus uh, for me lately has been getting over to Oahu more. Mm. You know, there's a large market over there. Um, Specialty coffee is a little bit, has a little bit of a bigger scene over there. Yeah, But yeah, it's just been about, getting it into people's hands because you know with our local markets here once people tried it yeah you know they're just like oh wow this is really good you know like i'll be carrying a case into like you know the kau store mm-hmm. over over by mama's fish house yeah. and like some guy stopped me the other day and he was like oh you sell that that's you so good <laughs> that's great yeah. and so that it's it's good when when things like that happen and yeah uh, and knowing that people are going places and they're buying it and there's regulars. And looking back at what you've accomplished so far, what would you say to you right before you started this as advice, right? Because that would be the same advice you would give our listeners. Like <laughs> if you could go back to yourself a couple years ago and go, hey, before you start this, get better at or do this instead. Oh, you know, I my weak points were – the business side, which is funny saying that, like opening a business mm-hmm. <laughs> was, was uh, you know, the accounting um, aspects of it, you know, taxes, you know, yeah. it's like, obviously you can hire people for those things, you know, taxes 100%, but like right now it's like I I maintain the books, but yeah. I, I had that experience when I was at, you know, running production facilities and things like that. But my advice to myself would probably be, like, get a therapist sooner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's Is it just that that overwhelmingness of, like, feeling like it's make or break? I mean, not so much that. It's just, like, you're pushing so many balls forward mm. at, all the time and being able to prioritize what balls – to push forward because it's impossible to do everything all at once and I'm learning that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, it's it's the prioritizing. Are you would you describe yourself as like a perfectionist? 
I don't know if I would say perfectionist. Um, I just maybe particular. Mm, okay. <laughs> and 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 curious about you know like with the roast profiles. Like I develop a roast profile when I get a coffee day one. That's gonna change. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe week two, week four, three months. Like I'm just going to keep looking for what is the best outcome. Gotcha. So I don't know if that's being a perfectionist, but I just try and achieve a better and more efficient way of doing what I'm doing every day. Right. Which is as it should be, because then you're going to have a superior product, which then <laughs> drives your business forward. Yeah. Where can we get Origin Coffee here on island? But then also, if our listeners are not on island, how can they um, buy a bag of your coffee? I know I'm going to forget some places, but you can visit... Obviously, the website mm-hmm. um, under in our FAQ section, there is a list of our accounts. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, it's up to date. I'll have to double check that. But, you know, people serving us, you know, Espresso Mafia, I mentioned them earlier. Mm-hmm. They serve us on everything up there. Um, Marlowe, uh, great place up country as well. The market in Wailea, uh, Sunshine Market over in Lahaina, um, mm-hmm. Leanne Wong's restaurant, Pioneer um, not Pioneer, and Papa Ina over in Lahaina as well. Like She's been a huge advocate for Origin Coffee. She's such a, a good ambassador of local Hawaiian products. So I really appreciate that. One question I, asked, I ask every guest before we wrap up the episode is, if you could sit down with someone and have a conversation like me and you sat down and, and had a conversation about coffee, who would you like to sit down with? I would I would revert back to like my my best friend Katie. Like, mm. you know, I haven't talked to her in 16 years since she passed and yeah. if there's one person, you know, she'd be it. I don't care what we talk about, you yeah. know. Um just miss having that connection mm-hmm. with with a human and I know maybe I'm supposed to say like Albert Einstein or like no. Maya Angelou or something. <laughs> no, 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 you're not. No. That's that. If that's who it is, that's who it is. That's awesome. Um, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and sharing the, the, the process of what you do, but also a little bit about yourself. And, um, and I look forward to uh, seeing how Origin grows over the next uh, several years. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing, but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. If you've enjoyed even one episode, please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself, or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish, while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week. And as always, thank you for your support.